Hello and welcome to Comic Book Herald's Creative I'm Dave Musing, founder and editor-in-chief of ComicBookHerald.com. Today on this bi-weekly interview feature where we talk to some of my favorite creators in comics about some awesome, awesome works that are coming out, we're talking to Jeremy Holt. They are the writer of Made in Korea, Virtually Yours, House of Slay, Skip to the End, and much more, including an upcoming queer reimagining of the iconic The Great Gatsby. Uh, in particular, I'm definitely interested in talking today about Made in Korea. This is a book that came out, the trade came out just earlier this year, here in 2022. It's a sci-fi story of a not-so-distant future where AI synthetic beings are adopted by families that can't conceive. These proxies are out in the world and used for uh, various purposes, including, you know, basically um, fulfilling family needs. And it's a story of adoption, of fitting in, of identity. It's really, really interesting and one of my favorite reads of the past couple of years. Jeremy, thanks so much for joining today. Uh, how are you doing? Great. Thank you so much for having me. Um, and uh, thanks for reading Made in Korea and liking it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. No, I was happy to. So the the trade came out at the start of this year. The book mm. was coming out in issues via Image Comics last year. Um, how have you seen sort of attention or audience feedback pick up um, Steam or vice versa since the trade came out? I think it's because of the power of Image Comics. Um, this is a publisher I was trying to get in with for like, I don't know, 14 years. And I knew if I could do one book, uh, at least one book with them, and to hustle the way I've always hustled, um, that it was going to reach more people than I, I've done with my six previous books, six previous publications. Um, so it's been great getting you know messages from Korean adoptees, from parents. Um, more recently, I actually attended the American Library Association conference um, mm. on behalf of my publisher. And interfacing with librarians was actually really amazing because unlike a normal comic book convention, um, most of the people there want to buy books. Most of them want to know what's out there. Most of them want to stock their libraries. And it was actually really productive to, you know, engage with these librarians and tell them what my book was about. And, you know, a lot of them lighting up and going, oh, I know exactly who's going to love this book. Mm -hmm. And that's that was really exciting. Yeah, yeah. No, it's I definitely I keep hearing from from creators like yourselves and also just kind of as a fan of both comics and libraries, <laughs> like like how incredibly valuable libraries and librarians are in terms of comics catalogs, in terms of surfacing books to individuals that they might not have otherwise found. Um I know like at my local library, just like Case Study One, like there's a great like um, you know, queer-led, sort of diverse, like, featured platform in the library. Oh, awesome. It's just all these books that are, like, it just highlights them. It just puts a spotlight on them. And it's, I know not every place is like that. Obviously, that's a, that's a thing we can talk about because it's, you know, comes under fire in certain areas, next of the woods, right? Um, but it's super cool to see, and I, I love it. Uh, what, what else did you kind of learn at that at that librarian conference? Like, what, what were some of the more interesting conversations? Um, well, I did this, like, sort of a, a speed dating for comic book creators and librarians. So, like, I basically gave the Made in Korea pitch, which you actually did quite well at the beginning of this. Um, I said that over and over for, like, two and a half hours. <laughs> um, but what I liked about the conference, it, I, it for anyone who's ever been to a convention, the best way I can describe ALA is it's the most civilized convention I've ever been to. They had little things that I didn't notice at first, but made the whole experience just better, which was carpet everywhere. So wherever you mm. walked, it was super comfortable. Um, the opening night, they had like buffet style food on the convention floor. And I was just like, you could never do this at a comic book convention. <laughs> <laughs> um, and nobody was really selling anything. Every booth just had basically advanced review copies. So everything was free. And mm. it was amazing seeing these librarians 
come with bags and just shoveling books into their bags and they weren't even looking at most of them they're just like i want all of it i want all of it and so yeah. like that was actually kind of cool oh nice nice that's good that's good um very cool very cool so main korea you know you had the you had both the single issue experience now the trade of course and that's going to take on a life of its own um in libraries on digital platforms etc uh would you having gone through kind of the the single issue experience this is six issues now collected um, do you find yourself approaching how, kind of how you view monthlies in comic shops differently? Like, do you see, have a kind of a different attitude towards that? That's a great question. I do. My my views on singles have changed um, mainly because it's really hard to keep promoting a book month after month, uh, especially when the natural declines happen. Like, everybody buys a first issue, you know, then sales just kind of drop from there. If they pick back up halfway through, that's amazing. Um, yeah. For me as a creator, I personally have gravitated more towards a graphic novel or at least releasing a story all in one go. Um, I think main Korea works on in both ways. I rate all my books to either be single or, or uh, collected editions. It doesn't really matter the delivery, but I do prefer graphic novels simply because they can go into bookstores sooner. Uh, it's easier to honestly sell them at conventions because nobody wants to buy the first chapter of a book that they may not finish. Right, right. Um, so yeah, my, my views have definitely changed. I mean, it was fun promoting an image title for six months. Um, but moving forward, I'd, I'd rather just have, you know, the one and done. Yeah. Yeah. That's interesting. I, I think that's something that definitely as fans, we forget is like, that's a lot of marketing to take on as a creator, you know, sort of the month after month, like, oh, by the way, here's, you know, especially <laughs> for things that go longer than issue six, you know, yeah. like if you're out there marketing, you know, issue nine, issue 19 in a series, it's like kind of either in or you're out <laughs> at that point, you know, um, it's a tricky one. So have you, you did the, the American library convention, you know, cause this, this book comes out mostly last year, obviously we're still, you know, pandemic rules and a lot of conventions. So ha has this year been, have you had the chance to actually get out and do more of the kind of comics con convention circuit and actually get like more face to face with made in Korea or not so much? Not so much. I mean, I still, I, I technically sat behind the image booth at ALA, but it wasn't the experience that I'd envisioned because going to New York Comic Con or going to Emerald City, whatever show it was, Image yeah. always has this massive, impressive booth. And I'd always had this fantasy of sitting at that table mm. signing books. And I haven't done that yet. And I'm I'm not even sure if Image is going to be at New York Comic Con this year. So, like, um, yeah, it's, it's not what I imagined. Um, sure. And because of COVID, everything changed. I mean, because of COVID, this book got delayed by two years. Um, but I'm actually really happy about that because a lot, as far as representation in cinema uh, and television has changed uh, quite a bit um, with like Parasite and Squid Game mm. and, and Lee Isaac Chung and, and uh, Chloe Zhao getting nominated for Oscars. So it's like the Asian representation and sort of the interest in Asian culture, uh, specifically, I guess, Korean, uh, has been awesome. And it sort of worked in my favor. Yeah. Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah, there definitely has been. I think a positive movement in terms of, of people recognizing like the need for that representation and also the quality of material that, that, you know, has not been in the mainstream spotlight necessarily. I mean, even in comics, um, I know you did an interview with them, but, uh, porn sick pizza show, it's the good Asian is, is so incredible. Right. And there's, there's been books like that. And I think made in Korea definitely kind of slides into that, you know, Hey, we should check these books out. Right. You get the Oprah book club, you know, recommending AI, AAPI, which I know me and Korea was featured on, right? That's, yeah, it's, it's, hopefully that can be sustained, right? I guess is the big one, right? Hopefully yes, that continues. Yes. And, and sort of a conversation I've been having with, um, 
industry professionals, and I've talked about this on panels recently, about um, holding space for POC creators to sometimes create mediocre stuff or mm. just campy, terrible stuff. Like, I feel like the space being held now is so small and you have to produce Oscar-worthy level material or Eisner award-winning material if anybody wants to read it. Um, and so, yeah, I just hope that we can hold more space for anybody to create anything and it doesn't have to be the next best thing. It can just be the next good thing. Yeah, that's interesting. That's interesting. Yeah, I think so often we we have overlooked historically or the comics medium has overlooked historically. Like, yeah, just the ability to to be mediocre or to fail and then mm -hmm. have a chance at more things. You know, it's something we see definitely <laughs> in big two comics where it's like, you know, if creators, if, if people of color get the chance to write some of the bigger books, it's like, well, yeah, but their resume is like they want a, you know, a MacArthur Genius Grant. You have done some things. <laughs> yeah. yeah, for sure. You need more opportunities, uh, you know, prior to that point, I think is a big thing. Um, so I, I've seen you talk in interviews how, how with Made in Korea and kind of throughout your comics career, that um, you are coming to it as a, a you know, queer person of color, um, but your name has led people to assume that you're just like mm. another white guy. <laughs> mm -hmm. And did you run into like negative feedback with Made in Korea from folks who were like, oh, weird, like this doesn't feel like it's their story to tell, like not understanding? I've only seen it once. Uh, okay. I saw it on some random tweets that I, sometimes I will go down that rabbit hole and look at comments. Um, so I went searching for comments because I was like, I want to see what people think of this book. Sure, yeah. And um, somebody uh, had screen capped, I think, the third page from the first issue where uh, Kim Dong-chul is running through the streets of Korea. Um, and I didn't double check the signage in, in, in the that exterior shot. There's a lot of stores, front signage and text and whatnot. And... Um, I didn't check any of it. So I think the person was complaining about the inaccuracies somehow, mm -hmm. but I didn't really understand. But mainly they said, oh, look, white people co-opting Asian narratives. And I'm just mm -hmm. like, you didn't even like look at my profile. You couldn't have just been like, hey, look, there's a there's a Korean flag next to the name. The name's in Korean. Oh, look, it's an Asian person. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah. That's, there that's there are good. clues. <laughs> there are some clues. See, yeah. Okay. No, that's it's funny is the wrong word, but it is like it can. I, I, it was very interesting reading that interview you did on CBR with Pornsick where you were kind of like, that has actually like weirdly worked against me in some ways um, with people I, not yeah. understanding like my identity, right? And something that you bring to the table. I think it's changing now that I'm I'm just putting myself out there more. Um, and something in that interview with Pornsick, which was interesting, he's convinced, and I've been thinking about this and I can't dispute it, but he's convinced I might be the only Asian writer who's come into comics specifically to write comics. That was interesting, yeah. Yeah, I was like, there's got to be another because <laughs> even he doesn't consider himself because he came in through editorial and it's like, yeah, OK, that's a good point. And I was like, there's got to be there's got to be someone else. But yeah, yeah, that was a it was a really interesting compliment, I think, in a lot of ways. Right. He was saying like you yeah. you've came just through comics and like kind of kind of selling like that's a harder thing to do. You know, I guess because I guess even if it's even if there are a handful of other examples, there's only a handful, right? And that's that's obviously not a good thing. Um, the fact that you're doing it is is great. Do you feel any of that yourself, or like I'm I'm assuming it hadn't probably hadn't really occurred to you no. until you started talking about it? Yeah, it hadn't occurred to me. I mean, the only other person I would love to throw out there that I think could fit this category is Ram B. Um, sure. I'm pretty sure he's never been an editor of any kind. Um, I know he has like a very impressive 
engineering background. Um, but yeah, I mean, for me, it's it's actually kind of now now I'm realizing that I got into comics because I wanted to write them. But like, I would go to conventions as press. I used to write reviews. So maybe I'm not even. I don't even qualify for that because I was writing reviews to gain access to these creators um, just to understand their process. So like, sure. I, I had f- complete access uh, to, you know, people like um, Curtis Weeb is one of my closest friends in comics and he doesn't actually really write comics anymore, but um, sort of my cohort that I sort of developed friendships with was like Curtis Weeb, Ed Brisson, Riley Rossmo, mm. Trad Moore, uh, Justin Jordan. Um, so, um matt rosenberg so like it's just a great little community um but i definitely had to figure out a way to get uh in the room to talk to these people but definitely once i became friends it was really cool to see how all of them work and just learn from them yeah yeah that's that's interesting you mentioned that so i think you i've seen you wrote for multiversity in the past if i'm not mistaken Mm -hmm. um the press the comics press to comics writer pipeline is strong there's definitely a lot of folks who have mm-hmm. that interest in that path. Um, I think a lot of times there's an assumption that like people only write about comics because they want to write them themselves, which often proves true. Uh, but that was definitely for you. That was the case, right? Like that you were certain about that. Yeah, I mean, like I, yeah, because I like I have my friend Land Pitts is also he's done that route. Like he's been a major journalist for um, Newsrama, CBR. Um, and he's written his own comics that are great. Um, <clears throat> I guess that was for me, that was my way of getting in. Um, <clears throat> but as far as like pitching and stuff, I tried every which way to get in with image. I was, I was given so many pieces of advice, very, very detailed piece of advice from creators who'd gotten in and each piece of advice was completely different from the previous one. And I tried all of them and nothing worked. And the way I got in was a way I'd never heard of. Um, and I was like, yeah, I guess it's true. You kind of find your way in and as soon as you walk through that sort of portal, <clears throat> excuse me, the, the, the opening closes behind you kind of thing and someone else has to figure it out. Yeah. Yeah. It seems fairly unique <laughs> for virtually everyone. So I guess let's talk about that a little bit then. So <clears throat> as far as pitch process, as far as getting in the door, cause you were very keen on getting made in Korea through image. It sounds like, um, what, like, what did you have to do to sell them? Cause you had comics to your name, certainly at this point, like you had done the work. Yeah. And, you know, skip to the end was out, like which is a book I actually enjoy a lot. We can talk about that too. Um, but yeah, like, what would you have to do to? to um, I mean, I was just submitting to their blind submissions for years. Um, when Eric Stevenson was more visible at conventions, I pitched to him face to face at the booth, um, which I didn't find a lot of success. And you know, the things I tried was like I knew creators who were very close to Eric, and someone was like, "You got to get them to talk you up." They were willing to do that. That didn't really land anything and really um it was actually a production artist uh my friend vincent who was working at image at the time uh really loved my first uh comic book southern dog and he really wanted me to take the rights from the existing publisher and bring it over to image to do another volume and i was like oh that's interesting uh but i sent him made in korea the pitch and he was like oh i'm going to show this to marla and i was like Who's Marla? Because as far as I knew, Eric was reviewing all submissions by himself. And that sort yeah. of was the, the the legend was Eric, only Eric can say yes, uh, which is still true. But I didn't realize he had people helping him look through submissions. So uh, I was like, yeah, I don't know who this Marla person is, but definitely send it to her. And she really is the one who championed it because it took about a year. Um, I remember a year in after Vincent had given it to her, 
she kept saying, I'm going to show it to him. I'm going to show it to him. I was like, okay, okay. And then like a year later, I was like, can we just call time of death? Because I got to move on with my life. I can't keep holding on to this hope. And, she, and it was like right after New York Comic Con of that year. And she's like, I'm going to get him to read it right after we get back. I said, okay. And then a week later, she sent me an email. And she's like, you're in. I was like, what? And I so I never even spoke to Eric directly, which I'd never heard anyone go through someone else to get something in. So Yeah. Yeah. And here we are. Yeah, yeah. There's your first, there's your first image. Interesting. <laughs> interesting. Yeah, no, it is. It's funny. It's like probably every story is some variation of unique. Um, and, and, but this one pays off. So one thing I'm curious about is main career comes out. Um, it gets a lot of attention. Image obviously has a great reputation for high quality. It fits into that. I think, you know, the book is definitely on a lot of best of the year list and that sort of thing. But one thing it does, I think potentially is it sets you up as Jeremy Holt, the sci-fi writer. Mm. Do you want to be viewed as a sci-fi writer, because obviously looking through your catalog, like it's not just that. Yeah, that's oh, that's a good point. Um, I don't know. I don't feel like anyone's ever pegged me as a sci-fi writer, which is interesting. I don't personally want to be viewed as a sci-fi. It's weird. I, I love sci-fi um, films and, and TV shows. I I less I like sci-fi less with books. Um, I don't. They don't gravitate. Uh, I don't gravitate towards them. So. Um, I definitely don't want to be viewed as a, a writer who writes one thing, um, which is why I specifically uh, early on, instead of like pitching ideas to artists, I'd say, what do you want to draw the most? What, what could you spend all day drawing? And then they'd tell me something and I say, okay, I'll get back to you with an idea. Um, just to sort of flex my muscles and strengthen those creative um, muscles and be like, can I do this? Can I write something I know nothing about or have almost no real interest in? Can I learn to like it? Um, and it was great because it kind of forced me out of sort of the, the comfort zone of just writing really dark, really depressing stories. Mm. So. Interesting. Interesting. What's a, what's a good example of that, of a thing where an artist gave you like, Hey, I want to draw blank. And you were like, you rolled with it and it wouldn't have been something you would have picked otherwise. Um, my Houdini books. Um, I had no intention of ever writing a book about Harry Houdini. Not that I don't find them interesting. I've, everyone finds them interesting, but, um, the fact that, uh, the original artist on the project, uh, this guy, Kevin Ziegler, uh, was very into Houdini. Like I was pitching him all sorts of stuff and he was like, yeah, that sounds cool. And he just never really was interested enough to draw anything. I was like, okay, what do you want to draw? So reading a bunch of stuff about Houdini actually was pretty cool. And, and, um, what was exciting for me was, uh, the second book, um, before Houdini, uh, I got to focus on, uh, Eric Weiss's life as a teenager, which there's almost really no information about. Mm. So that was super exciting because I do love revisionist history, history stories. So I was like, yeah. I've got a lot of range and I can go in a lot of different directions and it's sort of okay. Mm. Interesting. Did you learn any magic tricks in the process of researching Houdini? No, no. I mean, I had a roommate in college who was actually quite good with magic and we did a uh, launch party at the uh, Houdini Museum of NYC for the first book launch. And uh, they hosted, and the publisher spared no expense, and everybody working that event was a magician. And I saw some of the coolest illusions at my own book party. I was like, this is it, only downhill from here. <laughs> that's cool. That, that's a cool way to, to promote that. Yeah, that's pretty interesting. Yeah, for folks who don't know, it's, it's after Houdini and then before Houdini. Um, and I think after Houdini focuses on, is it, it's Harry Houdini's son, right? Yep. Um, and it's kind of this world of, kind of like spies and intrigue and demons and magic and stuff you know it's it's an interesting take on the on the houdini myth which is definitely not something i would 
have known much about. Be like, right. like you could tell me any fact, and I'd be like, oh yeah, like he rolled across, <laughs> you rolled across Niagara in a barrel. Sure, yeah, I buy it. Yeah. And I, I think the best compliment for the first book was people said, oh, I didn't know Harry Houdini had a son, and I said, yeah. he doesn't. <laughs> right. That's the there best you compliment. go. Yeah, yeah, it feels believable. Very cool. Very cool. Um, okay, interesting. Yeah, so definitely a, a variety to the catalog. I mean, I think one that that definitely sells that too is like virtually yours is um is totally unlike uh made in korea i think in most ways it's a very upbeat rom-com um it's very character focused and and even call it it's a rom-com yeah yeah um, it's a rom-com that's rom-com. yeah <laughs> it's very delightful uh what what made you want to tackle that story in that way was it what what spoke to you more sort of the elements of dating just wanting to write like you know kind of this perfect hallmark romance you know but yeah with queer queer diverse cast right. like what was it I, i've always loved rom-coms um i have to credit my my former roommate my uh my friend katie who we went to high school together uh we used to hang out and go see a rom- rom-com together which was so much fun and so i was i've always loved that genre and i love watching it uh every new one that comes up um to see how they use the tropes because they have to right and it's usually, you know, two people meet under false pretense that that lie gets exposed. And then oftentimes the guy is chasing the girl to apologize. And then there's usually a karaoke scene. Um, so, like, <laughs> right. I wanted to explore that. But um, honestly, uh, I just really wanted to write a version of Brooklyn that doesn't exist anymore. So the story mm. takes place mostly in, in and around Park Slope, Brooklyn. Um, I mean, one of the characters lives all the way up in um, the Bronx. But... Uh, yeah, I mean, like, I resurrected locations that don't exist anymore. My, my all-time favorite comic book shop, the late great Bergen Street Comics in Prospect Heights, Brooklyn, was my home away from home. Um, Tom and Amy, the owners, and Tucker, the, the shop clerk, were just great. And they created a real sense of community. So I really wanted to just basically resurrect, like, 2009 Brooklyn um, and just set a story there and um, focus less about two people falling in love but more about two people navigating life that exists outside of love like there's so much life to live and not everybody wants to be in a relationship and what does that look like um and also it was my first chance to actually write about some my own personal traumas and being in a really toxic marriage that i wanted to Mm. weave into a a narrative and and see if it would work and um i'm surprised that people like that part of the book the the most because people are like I wouldn't have thought that a domestic violence story fits in a rom-com, but somehow you made it work. Right. And it's right. like, yeah, because I, I wanted to show a different side of that um, complex issue. Um, but overall, I just wanted to try to make it fun because, again, I write dark stories. So, like, I have this little light board in my office here that just I light it up and it just says, make it fun. Because sometimes I'll be right. And I look and I'm like, oh, I got to make it fun. Not your impulse. Interesting. Interesting. Yeah, I could see that. I could see that. Well, and I think the you know, the thing with the with the toxic marriage, right? And with the abuse is it, it feels very authentic. It feels very truthful. And I think that's one thing that made in Korea captures in a very different way, especially well too. you know, that's, that's a lived experience for you, right? As a transracial adoptee. Mm -hmm. Um, So there's, there's so much truth, I think on the page, but even for myself, like I don't have that experience, but I do have the experience of difficulties conceiving, for example, right? So finding truth in, the parents kind of going through that process and thinking oh, about yeah. what you do to find like that piece of it saying to me in a way that probably, you know, that was that for you was just um, filling in the world, right? And making mm-hmm. all this click, right? So the different experiences, because your truth is on the page in one way, you're finding other 
other truths in other characters, I think, pretty that's effectively. That's amazing. Yeah, that's amazing. And um, yeah, I, I just, uh, Virtually Yours was, was the book that it enabled me to, to tell, weave those personal truths into the narrative. And it directly influenced Made in Korea because I, once I finished that, I hopped back onto Made in Korea and I realized a lot of it wasn't feeling as grounded as it could be. And I was, mm. then I started, I was like, wait, it, it worked for Virtually Yours, at least in, in my head. So I was like, maybe I can push it even further with Made in Korea and get more personal in different ways. Yeah. Um, so that's cool that it resonated with you. Yeah, yeah, no, definitely in a lot of ways, in a lot of ways too. You know, because it's like I have a son who just started kindergarten, right? So there's these sorts of things, and it's like, okay, a kid going to school, and who are they talking to, and what kind of kids are they hanging out <laughs> yeah, with, you know? And right. all these questions that are that are popping up. It's yeah, it's super, super relatable. Um, one thing I'm curious about with Made in Korea is okay, the conclusion. Now this is going to be spo super spoilery. Mm -hmm. um, so if anyone hasn't read it, I recommend that you do, and you know, skip ahead two minutes or so, and and we'll we'll get to some other stuff. The conclusion and Jesse's finding their way back home in the body of a man right that was a twist i did not see coming definitely um how how much was that always a part of the plan for you um and what if any kind of comments on queerness on transness um are you looking to make there because i'll be honest as a reader i was i'm still a little confused i'm definitely muddied on what that's selling Oh, I see. Okay. Um, it was never the original idea. Um, that concept sort of came to me halfway through writing Made in Korea. Um, I feel like if, as a writer, if you do your due diligence, at some point the the characters are going to speak for themselves. And it just seemed like a natural conclusion, especially because I was um, incorporating KDC's cousin in the story. And I, and I kept asking myself, why do I want to feature him? I want to, I knew I wanted to tell his story in a later subsequent volume, but how does he fit into this narrative? And I realized it was sort of this perfect setup where we understand what he's working on. He believes adult proxies are the future, not children proxies, which in some ways I totally agree with that. Um, uh, but it's still a consumer business, but it does uh, sort of get Jesse to finally find resolution in this, uh, the body dysmorphia that she's feeling where she's like, I want to keep growing, but I'm not. Mm. And everyone's like, well, that's the, them the breaks, kids. Like, that's that's it. That's all you got. And for her to figure that out, and also to tie it with dreams, like do, you know, do electric, or what is it? Do do a do robots dream of electric sheep kind of thing. Um, so like it all sort of coalesced. And I was like, this would make the most sense. And for me, when it comes to an artificial intelligence story, I think what would be really amazing to see, which I haven't seen is, if something we per perceive as artificial chooses a gender, because to me that is as human as it gets, or not so much chooses a gender, but like realizes who they are and sees themselves beyond what they're looking at in the mirror and they feel something deeper and they feel compelled. Um, and to me, I thought that was more interesting than someone just, you know, being very human-like. Like, like I, I think it, you know, sort of show, don't tell kind of thing. And I yeah. thought that... Um, yeah, and also just to show that, um, you know, I don't know, like the fact that um, we are we are born in, we are born and then uh, society will dictate certain things and press upon certain ideals, and um, the people that have the courage um, to transgress all of that to find their own personal truth, I think, is a really beautiful thing, and and that's really wanted what I wanted to show, but also. Jesse sort of transitioning into an adult um, 
is also a setup for for more story. There's a purpose to it. Um, what whether George and I get to tell that uh, is yet to be seen. Okay. Okay. So there's there's a hope for that, but TBD. On, yeah. On more yeah. Crew. Because I mean, the reality is is that the, my commentary on the technology in this book is that society wants certain things and then te technology will go oh we need to fill this demand without mm -hmm. really thinking of the larger ramifications so mm -hmm. i think a good example of this is like the google google search engine sure. that the intent was very good they wanted a tailored search engine the impact has been very bad where you and i could be sitting next to each other we type in the same uh, question and we get completely different results based on our algorithms mm -hmm. and so mm -hmm. it morphs the world around us um and I feel like with the proxies, people want kids, but they don't think about the larger ramifications of the fact that, do you want to raise a nine-year-old forever? <laughs> like, I mean, in my mind, they are going to get abandoned. And what happens when they do? Um, so Jesse would play a larger part in sort of a, not a shepherd role, but like definitely um, it, it's sort of watching all these kids being thrown out. And it's like, that would be heartbreaking. Visually, I think it would be heartbreaking. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. That's that's an interesting piece of commentary and kind of projecting where that stuff might go. As far as having not read a story like that before, I do have to recommend, I just talked to Blue Delaquante, a comics creator. I don't know if you've heard of Oh Human Star. Mm -mm. Is their work uh, recommended reading? It's, okay. it's got uh, very, very similar touch points in Made in Korea, I think, in terms of sort of AI, but, but through very much focused through the lens of queerness and and um, transness and kind of finding identity that way it's fantastic comic if you find the time in between writing all of your own <laughs> comics oh human star is a good one star cool yeah yeah definitely okay okay that makes a lot of sense um so all right i have a few more questions for you we can kind of jump off the maiden korea train um but again i do highly recommend people check it out we'll put the links of course in the show notes um okay i'm a big marvel fan you have a story in marvel voices identity uh their aapi anthology uh, for your story, you took on Mantis, the Celestial Madonna, one of the most complex continuities in Marvel. Like, I, like for my money, like maybe the most confusing <laughs> character possible. What made you want to take on Mantis and, and what was important to say? I'm going to be very honest. I was assigned it. Okay. Yeah. So <laughs> yeah. Um, my editor is like, uh, I'd like you to do, like I, the first one I did was a five page short uh, last year for the anthology. Um, and I used the character Silhouette, which was even a lesser known character. Um, but I was given five extra pages for this one, so 10 pages. And um, my editor's like, uh, I want you to write Mantis. Uh, she has to team up with another character that has to also be Asian. Uh, and you need to change her skin tone from green to human. And I was like, how do I do that with the skin tone? He said, I don't know. You got to figure it out. So mm. he sent me what I believe was almost a thousand pages of back issues I had to read and oh, I didn't realize cow. her character goes all the way back to like 1973 uh -huh. and that she was like an OG Avenger fighting along yeah. Hawkeye and Thor and Iron Man um, and her story is also very problematic um, as an Asian person it's very problematic so oh, yeah. um, I initially wanted to team her up with Wong but I was like I don't know why they team up and my editor's like just so you know they've never ever met in any storyline I was like oh so then I was like, what do I do? I don't know how to do this. And then I was like, can I use Groot? And then he said, how much is he going to be in the story? I was like, very little. And he's like, okay, pitch it to me. So I, I pitched the story that ended up getting published. But um, it was really fun reading about her story and then just trying to figure out 
Um, this one component that it was I, I found really interesting regarding her backstory is that her identity was fractured and split across the universe. And Thanos is going chasing down those pieces and destroying them one by one. And at one point, he, he faces off with her and he says to her, you're too strong. And he runs away. I'm like, that's interesting. Um, but I've also been thinking a lot about, at the time I was writing, I was thinking a lot about the inner child the psychology term. And I thought, wow, that'd be really interesting if uh, that's the one part that she ha she didn't know she was missing. And most people forget about it or don't actually work on their inner child and think about, you know, how do you self-soothe? How do you grow as a person? How do you listen to your body kind of thing? And um, I thought that would be a perfect way for her to um, change back into this human skin tone because i mean mm. let's be honest the reason she's green is because she essentially had sex with a tree like that's that's the <laughs> right. story and i'm like oh yeah. god wow that is <laughs> that is an idea <laughs> it sure is it sure is that late 70s avengers uh, uh celestial madonna um yeah okay interesting yeah i love i le did love how much you pulled from i think it's the Engelhart. you know it's the the 2000s oh, what is it celestial quest probably um, and that's, the, that's where the Thanos stuff comes from. But yeah, that idea that like, she's still incomplete and has this piece of her missing was, was a fun way to connect those dots on what is a tangled, tangled web yeah. <laughs> of, of continuity and messy ideas. It is, for sure. it is very interesting. And, and like, um, it is interesting to just see how she's portrayed in the MCU. Like, it's just a completely different character. And it's very docile, which I also don't like. And it's like, uh, if 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 moviegoers knew how awesome she is, it would be, be nice. Yeah, yeah. The MCU version, uh, I've definitely seen a lot of good criticism of because it does take away almost all of the, like, you know, the, the toughest and sort of most Avengers-like qualities of the character. Mm -hmm. Definitely in favor of what humor can we mine out of this. Right almost non-person at times um which is a bummer which yeah. is a bummer i think uh so okay cool so yeah if people want to read that they can find it in marvel voices identity um this it was this year's uh, 2022's um and and it's it's an interesting one especially if you're a fan of all that wild wild avengers mantis stuff if you know who koi is aka sequoia uh you'll want to read this <laughs> <laughs> okay um, I've seen you mention a few places that Brian K. Vaughan is your writing idol. You got a pull mm -hmm. quote from, from the Notorious BKV for Made in Korea, which is super cool. Uh, what are your favorite, favorite Vaughn works, uh, or the ones that have been most important to you as a fan? Uh, Why the Last Man was the book that, um, I had read The Dark Knight Returns, which got me into comics. That was my gateway, but it was Why the Last Man that I decided that, um, the rest of my life I need to write. <laughs> like that book, I was like, I need to do whatever this is. Mm. Um, and then, you know, I, I've... I've read most of his. I, I sadly I haven't kept up with his current works like Paper Girls or Saga, but um, Ex Machina I really loved. Um, Pride of Baghdad. So like, you know, even like Runaways is is awesome. Um, but uh, yeah, I you know when Why the the adapted show came out, I reread the entire series, and I was like, mm. it it was really fun to see how the show sort of contemporized some of the themes. Um, included stuff it actually included trans characters which was really interesting because right. that was never explored in the original book um but uh yeah i mean and he just happens to be the nicest guy like it's nice to meet your your hero and, and they turn out to be a decent person yeah yeah and they're not terrible no that is good did you when you revisited why were you like this holds up and all the the ways I remembered it, or was it kind of that experience, experience of like you can never go home again? Yeah, you can never go home because Yorick, some of his lines, I'm just like, oof, like 
that's like very um, hetero broy. Some of the language, I was like, oh, that's unfortunate. Um, yeah. But overall, it actually is really still enjoyable. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's it's tricky. Um, I think when you go back to some of those early two thousands works, but and stuff that I I know I loved, and then you yeah. read it now, and it's like, well. I know it's still good, but I also know <laughs> they probably wouldn't write it that way. And, yeah. you know, <laughs> it doesn't work quite the way it for did sure. maybe then um, for better or for worse. Uh, so let's let's talk Gatsby. So you're adapting The Great Gatsby. Um, that's going to be coming out, your next big project. What do you think it is about Gatsby that lends itself to a queer retelling um, and kind of what got you on the track of wanting to to be the one to tell that story? Well, I'm a latecomer to the book. I was not somehow assigned it in high school. Um, That's a miracle. <laughs> I mean, I was assigned Catcher in the Rye. That was like my jam when I was yeah. a teenager. Um, that book also doesn't really hold up. But um, Gatsby I read in 2017. Um, it was sort of, I was writing, I was actually developing and outlining a, a prose novel uh, featuring a unique serial killer. So I was like, really deep into research and surprisingly it's very easy to contact the FBI to get information about criminal profilers. That was surprisingly easy. Hmm. So I was like really deep into that, but I was taking breaks reading as much as I could as well. And I was like, I want to read books that I, I've been wanting to read. So, you know, Fitzgerald's second novel was on that list and I didn't realize how, how short it was. It's like under 200 pages. And I was surprised by how relevant it felt, um, mainly from the, the concept of the American dream, what it looked like 100 years ago through the, through the eyes of Fitzgerald, um, who at the time, from what I understood, his first novel was a, a smashing success, and it was a commentary on, on life at that time. Um, so I also like the idea of reinvention. Um, that struck out to me immediately because growing up, I moved a lot. And whenever we'd moved to a different school in a different country, my mom always said, this is your time to reinvent yourself. You can be whoever you want to be. Hmm. And so thinking about Gatsby and how he's transformed his life out of sheer will and determination and imagination, I was like, that's still relevant. But like, how would that work in the 21st century with the internet? Because I do have friends that have zero digital footprints. Like they do not exist anywhere online, which blows my mind. I was like, okay, so it's possible. But then I started looking at what, it, what that story would look like in the 21st century. Like, you know, Gatsby being a bootlegger, how does that work? And I started f coming up with all these quick solutions that actually worked in my mind. I was like, oh, I could do this. And then I just said, you know, I'm also done writing white male na narratives. So I was like, oh, this is a great opportunity to de-age the characters, to um, race bend them, um, and even gender bend some of them. So it's like, um, <clears throat> yeah, it was, it was really fun. And I, I didn't think it was going to work ultimately because I was it got rejected for well over a year and I was like nobody wants mm. this and then um, I have to give full credit to Axel Alonso who um, of AWA he was a huge fan of Made in Korea and I've told this story before and I told him when I first met him in person I told him the story I was like I know you don't know this but when you called me to tell me you loved Made in Korea which was super flattering and asked me what else I was working on at the time I was at my grandmother's funeral and I was like I saw the call and I was like I, I have to take this I He's calling me. Like, this is an editor I've yeah. looked up to for well over a decade. Yeah. So I excused myself. We had this nice conversation, and I sent him the Gatsby material, and then, like, you know, the rest is history. I was like, that's amazing. So. Yeah. What timing? What timing? Yeah. That, I mean, it is. Axel Alonso is super fascinating to me as an editor. Like, his his editor, his editor in chief, Rain at Marvel, is like 
I just I feel like there's like a whole like oral history to be told about <laughs> oh, yeah. like what actually went down because there's uh-huh. there's so much like fascinating really good stuff mm-hmm. and and pushes for inclusivity that came out of that era that I feel like um, comics as a whole are still benefiting from but then it's also very much under fire for a whole bunch of reasons that we we don't need to get into um, okay very interesting so I mean one of the big things with with Gatsby is so I guess so the copyright is. It's been 100 years or whatever, right? So people can reinvent this world. And I've seen, when I was looking this up, it seems like there are novels that either are coming out or going to come out that are kind of doing um, a similar sort of reinvention. You're going to get to do it with comic here and probably be one of the first in in that world. Um, I think this all connects to a very broad conversation just in terms of like queer books are under fire, right? Yeah. Doing something with an icon of American literature, mm-hmm. that's going to get attention. Mm-hmm. How do you feel about sort of the state of things um, and the market and and driving you know the train headfirst into it with with a book like Gatsby I mean I'm I'm as prepared as one can be from the backlash that's gonna happen I've already received some backlash like and I was like oh I think I've made it like all the writers I know who have who have outstanding careers have all received death threats at some point I'm just like that's a sad statement to make yeah Um, absolutely but uh, yeah, I know that there are people that are not going to like it because it defies the convention. It defies the original source material. But um, even you know, Fitzgerald's great granddaughter has stated that she wants to see a more diverse, modernized retelling. Mm-hmm. Um, and I've I've also seen a couple novels that retell the stories from different points of views. Of like, one is focusing on the Jordan Baker character, but it's also still set in the twenties. And I'm just like, not interesting. Like I. Mm. I my my excitement about the book, and this might be surface level superficial, but I was really excited to reinvent the Gatsby party and also reinvent the Gatsby mansion. Like, I wanted to invent a wonderland of a party that you would go to this party and you'd see things you'd never see anywhere else. You'd see things that you're like, is this a dream? Um, so that was really fun because I feel like with technology today, we could really push the envelope of how amazing a party could be. Um, yeah. especially if it's Gatsby um, and also like where does he get his money it was really fun to figure out um, the story ends the same way um, a lot of the characters do their character arcs do follow the source material they just I've had to pivot because of their ages I've had to change some of the relationships just slightly like the um, George and Myrtle Wilson characters the gas station attendant's wife um, because they're younger I changed that to a brother and sister rather than a husband and wife um, mm. So there were little tweaks there, but I think that people of the of the book are going to see the changes, and and it'll be interesting if they like it or, or not. Yeah, I definitely just on a just on a pitch level am more intrigued by the idea of how you modernize it. What what you know, kind of the twists and connections are where it's like, oh, Gatsby is this instead of a bootlegger. Like I just feel like that is inherently more interesting to me because the reality is like well we have Gatsby like I can go reread that anytime exactly if, if the interest strikes right if I want to live in that specific world um I I feel too you know as you're talking about recreating the party it's it is sort of like you had the Gatsby movie not that long ago with with Leonardo DiCaprio where it's mm-hmm. like oh big party in a 20s mansion and like that's fun but I'm picturing more like like in Succession when Kendall Roy throws his terrible birthday party, <laughs> and it's like, oh, this is how rich people have a birthday party. Like that's more interesting to me. Yeah, you yeah. know, is, is seeing that stuff on the page. And and you know the the things to take into account when you're when I was adapting it was that the the music, the interior design, and the fashion uh, is wildly different. And so I, I did drop Easter eggs uh, in the book that fans of the of the source material would recognize the li- a little nod and homage to, like. Not a direct inclusion into the story, like 
um, the the Dr. T.J. Eckelberg signage when they drive from you know West Egg to Manhattan. I don't incorporate that because it doesn't it has no relevance in my story. But I figured out a way how to evoke that uh, imagery in the book. Um, and there were little things like that. Like I took things out, but I knew I needed to weave them back in somehow, even if it was a visual uh, nod. Um, but yeah, I, I think that I hope people are surprised. Uh, even though you know how it's going to end, you're still surprised by the journey getting there because it's mm-hmm. it is a little different. Cool, cool. What do you hope the next couple years of your career look like? Kind of what kind of stuff do you want to be doing? Um, I think I want to be doing more uh, more direct graphic novels. Um, I would like to maybe try to take a stab at um, young adult uh, graphic novels, even middle grade. Sure. Because um, that could be fun. Um, but uh, yeah, just just doing more books when I can. <laughs> good, good, yeah. Uh, what, so we got Gatsby coming up uh, again. We're going to link to Maiden Career here in the show notes. Um, what else do you have coming up on the horizon? Anything you can talk about that you want to make sure people know about? Um, yeah, so Gatsby number one will be out November second. Um, virtually yours, the uh, print edition will be out. I think November fourth. Okay. Um, through Dark Horse. Um, so I look out for both of those. Um, and was that Comicsology originally? Was it digital? originally? Yeah. yeah. And then Dark Horse took it over and printed it, which right. I'm excited about. Um, and that's that's all I can say right now. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Very good. All right, cool. Well, Jeremy, this has been a pleasure. I've enjoyed the work and I enjoyed getting a chance to talk with you. And uh, and everybody, will make sure that we make the the links to the work available here in the show notes if you want to check them out. Um, as always, I'm Dave. You can find my stuff at Comic Book Herald, and uh, you know, like, subscribe. You know listen to the podcast for more interviews like this with uh with good creators so thanks jeremy thank you so much